Our reading today comes, of course, from 2 Samuel, and we're looking at chapter 23, and we're starting at verse 1 and reading through to verse 7. And I'm reading from the New International Version. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The, word, the God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless day, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my, my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns uses a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, and they are burnt up where they lie. Oh, good. This is my first time using this. They call it a Madonna mic. Uh, I don't feel much like Madonna, but it's my first time with it. Uh, so that's good. It's good it's working. Uh, it's good to be here for 2 Samuel. Uh, as always, we'll have a question time after. I assume that you save the doozies for Liam, so you can save them up for a few weeks. Uh, but if you've got any easy ones, we'll do that after the service. You can text it through or just ask in real life. Um, but yeah, this is our last look at 2 Samuel, which is really exciting. So I'm going to pray for us before we get going. Lord, we are, we are thankful for this series through 2 Samuel, uh, that despite some really challenging themes, uh, that it has pointed us to Jesus. I pray that as I speak today, uh, again, you'll, you'll make uh, that point clear that our salvation is found only in him. Uh, help me to, to speak your truth. Help us to grow from it. Uh, we pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, well, just last weekend, uh, Curse and I took the kids out for an adventure. I had to pick up the mower, uh, a mower from Newcastle. Uh, and so in doing that, uh, we thought we'll make the most of the opportunity. We headed out to Newcastle Museum. I don't know if you've heard, heard of it before. I hadn't uh, until we went looking. Uh, so we did that and then we went and grabbed some lunch. Uh, and as always, what should be a really simple operation uh, turned into quite an adventure. There was a, a huge range of emotions for us, uh, and I tried to capture some of it in images. Uh, this is what I came up with. And there's a lot going on there, right? Uh, and I'm sure, well, I, I kind of hope uh, that other parents are nodding along. They've had the same experiences. It's not just us. Uh, you, hopefully you can relate to some of those highs and lows. See, as we went out, we had genuinely wonderful moments. We laughed together as we played on the, the different experiments they had for you to try at the museum. 
Uh, but at other times, uh, we had a, those kind of reflective moments, Kirst and I looking on kind of in wonder as the kids helped each other out and, and played nicely. But we also had hair-pulling frustration uh, as one of our kids, I won't name who he was, uh, but one of our kids had a meltdown because we suggested maybe we'd have dumplings for lunch and it had an absolute tantrum over it. And then as he ate his nuggets later, said, I really wish we could have had dumplings. Uh, and of course, as these days always do, it finished with us crashed out on the couch exhausted. But as I reflect on all those different images, those different feelings that, that happen throughout the day, uh, it's good to recognise that there was a breath to what happened, that it's not something that you can just sum up uh, in a sentence or two. Uh, and I think having pictures like that kind of capture the complexity of what's going on. Well, today we come to our very last look at 2 Samuel, and as we do, we find a passage that is full of pictures, uh, pictures that help us capture the complexity of all that we've seen as we've made our roller coaster ride through 2 Samuel. Uh, today's passage is at the centre point of what's generally thought of as the epilogue to 2 Samuel. Uh, if you remember last week, we saw that uh, chapters 21 through to 24 are kind of this one unit uh, that make the epilogue, uh, and, and it's something called a chiasm, which in Hebrew writing points us to the centre, uh, the centre being our passage today, the start of 22 through to 23, 7. Uh, and so that's why we're finishing here at this centre point, because that's kind of the big thrust of these last few chapters. Uh, and this centre point is made up of quite a different writing style than we've seen for most of the book. It's poetry. Uh, it's a lot more pleasant than Paul Lamb had to preach his way through all this hard stuff and then they give Rob the poems. That's good. Uh, but it's this poetry where David, King David expresses uh, these word pictures, uh, and it's a bit like my day out with the kids. He, he's capturing the complexity of what we've seen. Uh, and because of that, I'm going to do something a little bit different this week. Uh, so normally we kind of give you, you know, points one, two, three, four, whatever it might be. Uh, and if we're doing really well at those points, we make them all start with the same letter, and that's kind of catchy, and that's really good. Uh, but this week, I don't want to lose the messiness of the pictures that David gives us. I want us to capture that, 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 that there's lots going on. Uh, so at each point, I'm not going to give you a title. Uh, at each point, instead of a title, I'm going to get you to look up on screen and you'll see a bunch of images. Images that, for me, resonated some of the complexity of what's going on in that section. Uh, and so I'll show you those pictures again at the end of each point, and, and perhaps some of those images will resonate for you. Uh, perhaps different images will pop into your head. And so for that reason, I've given you a little box on your handout. Uh, that's what that's there for. See, for whatever comes to you, uh, you can put that into your box. Now, you might not be arty at all like me. I had to use Google Images. That's how I could find the pictures. Uh, and so maybe you want to just write some different words to capture it for you. Uh, but whatever it is, I want you to wrestle with the different images that are, that are at play in this passage. Uh, and as always, uh, as we get to the end, as we look through all these images, we're going to kind of wrap up. Uh, we're going to ask, what does this look like for us here and now? What do we do with all that we've seen? 
Uh, so let's get stuck into it. I'm going to get to the first section, verses 1 to 20. Uh, and as I worked my way through 1 to 20, these are the images that kind of resonated for me. Have a look at them. There's a, a bunch of different things going on. Uh, as we make our way through, I'll, I'll pop different ones up to, to show you where I, what, what made me put them in. Uh, and maybe you can see where I'm coming from as we do that. But, but as we get stuck in, the first place we need to look is verse 1. That gives us the context of, of what's going on. Uh, so here it is. It reads, David sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Uh, so we find this psalm is one that David wrote. Uh, in fact, you'll find it elsewhere in the Bible. It's, it's actually Psalm 18, kind of copied and pasted. Uh, and it's one that David wrote, we read, when God delivered him from his enemies and from Saul. Now, we don't know exactly when it was written. Sometime after God delivered David from both Saul and his enemies. It's not very specific, is it? Uh, but it seems, uh, at the very least, that it came late enough that he was already king. Uh, as there's a couple of references to his kingship in there. But, but I guess it doesn't really quite matter when it was written. Um, what's important is what's in there. And, and have a look at how it starts. So verses uh, 2 to 4 starts with this explosion of praise. It says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. From violent people you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. Now you can see a whole bunch of images in there, can't you? You can see why I've got my little fortress there that kind of fits in. Uh, and we get this torrent of, of images and praise from David. Uh, and I think that's not so much because they're the, the most obvious images that came to David. I, I think uh, it's much more that David is trying to express something bigger than just words. Uh, and so he can't do that, but he's doing his best. Uh, he's trying to, trying to explain what words can't quite capture. And so he uses a whole bunch of images flowed together. Uh, and that's God, isn't it? God is bigger than we can capture. We, we don't have the words to express it exactly, and so we do our best. And, of course, it's not enough. And I think that's particularly true for David at this moment. For David, as he writes, he's reflecting on the depth of the distress that he was in. There's a contrast there. Look at the next few verses. We read, The waves of death swirled around me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. This section is, is extreme and it's kind of darkness and depression as the first is, is high in its praise. David paints this, this devastating picture of distress, doesn't he? And following on from these two extremes of praise and distress, David spends the rest of the section describing, once again, in big colourful pictures, God intervening and bringing deliverance for David. Uh, I won't read it all. Uh, 
we'll do that a little bit. We'll skip through and, and kind of catch some highlights. So I encourage you to go away and, and really read this psalm. It's incredible uh, in this description of what's going on. Uh, but let's have a look at some of the highlights. Uh, we've got verse 13 and 14. Out of the brightness of his presence, bolts of lightning blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heavens. The voice of the Most High resounded. Uh, down to verse 17 and 18. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. Uh, and then look how this section finishes down in verse 20. He brought me in, out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, I think that's an incredible piece of scripture. Not only do we see God intervening in David's life so powerfully, it's wonderful to note that God doesn't do it grudgingly. This inter intervention isn't if he has to. He acts out of delight for David, a delight that extends to us as well. I don't think that's something that we find easy to remember, but it's true. This is the kind of thing you want to print out, stick up on your wall, remember it. God delights in you. And as we put this section together, we can see that God's powerful intervention makes sense of the way David opens this psalm in such a flood of praise. David understands that God has taken him from distress and hopelessness. And through God's powerful intervention, David has been rescued. But more than that, David has found refuge in God's arms, protected and safe. This contrasts, this, this uh, difference between distress and God's intervention reminds me of the interaction that Jesus has with the sinful woman in Luke 7. I, I don't know if you know the story. Uh, this woman comes to Jesus, uh, kind of broken. Uh, she, she comes and cleans his feet with her tears and her hair and then pours perfume, this is super expensive perfume, probably her life savings, she pours them on his feet. And when the Pharisees are there, uh, who are their comment, Jesus explains the great love that this woman has shown to him. And compared to the, compares it to the very little that the Pharisees have done. And then he says these words to them. He says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. See, David in this psalm understands how much God has done for him. And so he responds accordingly with this torrent of praise. And so as I want to encourage us as we continue on uh, through today's passage, we need to reflect, is that something that we understand? Do we understand the immensity of what God has done? Do we realize how powerfully and how necessary God has acted, intervened on our behalf? And have we responded accordingly? As we finish this section, let me pop up again those pictures on screen. Uh, reflect on them for a moment. Do they re resonate for you as well? Uh, maybe have another image in mind. Uh, have a think about what you might want to put in that box that helps capture what, what we've seen. I'll give you just a sec to do that. Uh, now let's, let's move on. Let's, let's look to the next section, verses 21 to 31. 
uh, a section that I think is perhaps one of the hardest to wrap our heads around because in it we find David has this audacious claim. Uh, Here's the images that I found for this chunk. Uh, We'll start by reading the the first few verses and you'll see what I mean about an audacious claim. Uh, So we'll start at 21. Reads, the Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to my cl- the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him and I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to my cleanness in his sight. Now, as you see that, if you've been with us for this series, you might be a little bit shocked. Uh, David is writing these words. This is the same David who we followed along as he's had an affair with Bathsheba that ended with her pregnant uh, and him killing her husband Uriah to cover it up. Uh, It's the same David who treated his own daughter so callously when her brother, his son, raped her and David didn't punish him. And yet he writes, I have been blameless. I've kept myself from sin. How how can he sit down and write those words? Well, I think uh, we need to first start with what's not going on here. And that is uh, that it's not, I don't think, a claim that David was sinless. Um, That's not something that David claimed. We'll see that a little bit later. Uh, But more than that, this book has been deliberately put together like this. Uh, As we saw last week, this epilogue, this section that comes right in the middle of the epilogue. Uh, And it's framed with stories of David's weakness and failures. And of course, it comes at the end of the book. The book that's recounted all these tales of David's sin. Uh, This section is deliberately after we've heard all those stories. This psalm has been placed here at the end of the book in a way that makes us remember David's sin as we read these words. So then what are we to do with it? Well, have a look at it all. Let's have a look at it together. Uh, I've got the first five verses there on screen. Uh, Notice there's a bit of a structure to it. Uh, There's these kind of enclosing verses, verse uh, verse 21 and 25. Uh, At either end is where we get this claim to righteousness. But it's the middle section that I think shows us what he means when he makes that claim. What does he mean by his claim to righteousness? Um, So have a look at that middle section, 22 and 23. It reads, For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. Now, they feel like big claims, don't they? But really, uh, they're not claims of perfection. They're claims of a general commitment to following God. He hasn't turned away from God. As we look through all his stumbles, uh, they are just that, stumbles, big ones, massive ones, terrible ones. But stumbles, because despite his big mistakes, he never stops following God. Uh, His commitment stays with him. Uh, We reflected last week that that that's the big difference between David and Saul. Uh, Arguably, David made bigger and worse mistakes than Saul. But what separates them wasn't the level of their failings, 
Both failed miserably. The difference was how they responded to those failings. Saul makes excuses and justifies, but David comes to God in repentance. And so despite his big mistakes, David really can say, I'm not guilty of turning from my God. Uh, Look at the next middle part, uh, verse 24. I've been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. Uh, We see the word blameless, uh, which we tend to read as sinless, but the Hebrew is capturing something else. It it implies wholeness or integrity. He's not claiming sinlessness. He's claiming a wholehearted commitment to God, uh, which we've seen despite his many mistakes. He has kept himself, not from ever sinning, but from giving over to sin and giving up on God. Uh, and understanding this helps, make, helps us to understand what it means for him to claim righteousness. He's not claiming a righteousness that he's earned for himself. He's claiming a righteousness that's been given to him by God. He's faithfully followed God throughout his life. Listen to these words uh, from Psalm 51, an- another of David's psalms, and it's one that he wrote as he repented from that terrible sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Here it is. I'll read from verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So it's clear here, isn't it, that, that David isn't claiming to be sinless. He says he was sinful at birth. He just understands what it means to be forgiven. That he, as a faithful follower, has been forgiven by God. His sin wiped clean. And so that because of what God has done, he can stand before him fully righteous because that's how God has made him. That's the the picture I think the rest of this section shows us. Uh, So again, I'll skip through the highlights. um, But here we go, verse 26, you show yourself faithful. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. Verse 28, you save the humble, but your eyes are on the haughty and bring them low. Verse 31, as for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. His claims initially sound arrogant, but as we dig, we find that David simply has confidence in what God does. That is perfect Uh, And he gives refuge to those who are faithful. And of course, we need to remember that that's no less true for us. Listen to these words from Romans. Uh, We're looking in chapter 23. But now, apart from the law of the, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Uh, This is something that we talk about a little bit in in our life course. Uh, I think most of us tend to be okay at at grabbing hold of the idea that Jesus takes our sin. Uh, He wears it on himself on the cross. But I think we struggle with the idea that at the same time as taking our sin, he gives us his righteousness. So we can stand before God fully righteous. That's not an arrogant thing to say because it's not our righteousness. It's his. It's given to us in grace. That's the truth at the heart of Christianity, isn't it? It's not about what I can achieve, but trusting in Jesus who has done it for me. 
If you haven't given Jesus that trust, what what an incredible offer it is. He takes your sin and gives you righteousness instead. If you haven't grabbed hold of that yet, let me urge you, grab on, hold it. What a gift. As audacious as it sounds for David to claim righteousness, it's important to recognize that if we have genuine faith in Jesus, our sins are taken away. We are credited with righteousness. So we too can call ourselves righteous, not arrogantly, but humbly as the recipients of God's grace. Let me pop those pictures up again. Uh, Reflect on them. What stood out for you? Our next section covers the rest of this psalm from from 32 to 51. Uh, Here's the pictures I had for this part. Superhero made the cut, including the wallabies. That's good. Uh, But you can see those pictures, there's a theme there, because this entire section paints a picture of strength and victory, of chasing down enemies, of destroying them. It's hopelessness for David's enemies, who cry out and receive no help, but absolute victory for David. And where does this certain and overwhelming victory come from? From God, God alone. You can't read this section and think that David is trying to steal any credit for himself, can you? It's all God. Have a look through. Uh, Verse 33, it is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. Verse 40, you armed me with strength for the battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. Uh, Verse 44, you have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have preserved me as the head of the nation. And verse 51, He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, we're not going to spend much time in this section, but I think it's important to note that as David looks back on his history, as he he looks back not with pride, but with humility, he recognizes where his victories come from. He recognizes that it's God's strength and not his That's stressed in what's around this poetic section, isn't it? Last week we saw that big part wrapping David's failings, uh, David's weakness. That's in 21 and 23. And so as we finish up to Samuel, it's important to recognize that where David is victorious, it's only in God's strength. David shows us that God is unstoppable. His strength is impossible to stand against. Now, that's something we're going to see in an entirely different way starting next week as we get stuck into our next series through Acts. There we'll see that despite persecution and resistance, the gospel continues to go out to the ends of the earth, not because of the strength of the apostles, but because it goes out in the strength of God. The great news there is that it's just as true today. It's not about how strong we are. It's about how strong God is. That's an important thing for us to remember and for us to hold on to tightly, especially in our weakest moments. Uh, look again at the pictures and we'll come to our last section. Uh, as we come to this very last part of the poetic section, 
David's last words. Uh, uh, so we've seen the psalm end, and now we're at a new section, David's last words. And here's the pictures I had for this part. This is the part Martin read out. Uh, and in these last words, right in the middle of them, is contained a prophecy. Uh, in these last words, David is given God's own words. Uh, and he wants us to make sure that he knows it. Uh, listen to how thoroughly he describes it. Uh, we'll look at the first kind of three verses. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His words, word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. Now, there's no mistake here, is there? He, he makes it abundantly clear that this is God's words coming, not his. And I, I think what he's doing is he wants us to know the certainty of it. These aren't David's words that, that may or may not come true. These are God's words. And so there's a certainty to it. They're like a rock. So we can read them knowing that they're absolutely true. And so what are these key words David introduces? What does he say to us? He says, When one rules over people in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he's like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning. Like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. I think the first thing to notice is, is what wonderful pictures they are. The light of sunrise on a cloudless morning. Brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. That's where you want to spend your afternoon, isn't it? Well, morning has to be morning, doesn't it? That's where you want to spend your morning over your cuppa. What a, what a scene. Clear skies, light and life. It's attractive. It's appealing. It's a picture of things working. And what brings those things? A ruler, but not just any ruler, a righteous ruler, a ruler who fears God. And in a lot of ways, that, that's a very general idea, isn't it? A good ruler will bring light and life. As we reflect on David, as we've seen his life, this is kind of what it was like in the very best moments, wasn't it? When he acted righteously, when he acted in the fear of God, as he should, there were wonderful moments. Moments where the kingdom prospered, where things were well. Moments of hope. But of course with David and with the many kings after him, Though there were moments, there were, there were none that we could say fulfilled the picture that we see here. None that, that brought that kingdom in a way that lasted. So while there is a general truth to what's going on here, I think there's more going on. After seeing David's psalm that looks back and reflects on his life, this seems to be a look in the opposite direction. I look forward. I look to a different kind of king. A king we now know is Jesus. A king who brought light and life. Listen to these words from the start of John's Gospel, John 1.4. In him, that's Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the light that comes after darkness, the king who came and brought the hope of new life. 
I think when we boil it down, 2 Samuel leaves us with this picture. The picture that we've been looking at all along, the picture that we've had for this series. See, on one side is what we see in 2 Samuel. A king who, who, despite being a man after God's own heart, just isn't enough. And so we see sin and brokenness. And it's, of course, no different to what we see as we look out into the world today, is it? Even in its best moments, it's not enough. It leaves us dissatisfied, wanting, needing more. That's the lesson of 2 Samuel. We need a better kind of king, a saviour who can really save us, a king who can bring light and life, a king who isn't reliant on being gifted someone else's righteousness, a king who brings a righteousness of their own. That's not David. That's not any of the Old Testament kings, not by a long stretch. For the people who, who read about it, who we've read about in 2 Samuel, all they could do was hope for something better. But we know that better king because he's already come. He's already lived a perfect life. He's already paid the price for our sin and given us his righteousness. David's last words were words of hope. Hope he probably didn't really understand, but nonetheless was absolutely confident would come to fruition. We know the reality of that hope. What, a, what an incredible gift it is to live now as we can see the fullness of this, that Jesus has come to know what we know. And that's where this leaves us. It leaves them looking for hope. It leaves us knowing that hope. And so we've seen through that roller coaster a whole bunch of different pictures. And I think as we finish, it's, it's good to reflect on that, to, to see what stood out to you. What part of the picture were you feeling? At the end of a series like this, I suspect that for you, like me, there's a whole mix of feelings going on, a whole mix of, of things that you're wrestling with. Like my day out with the kids, some of those feelings are wonderful. But others are much more challenging. But it's helpful to recognize that they're all there. For my day with the kids, it's really easy to get caught up with the challenges, isn't it? So much so that, that they can push out the joy. And I can tell you that in the midst of that meltdown, I was millimeters from packing it up, getting them all in the car and going home. But if I had, I would have lost such wonderful moments. I would have missed those bits that came next. Spending a moment noticing the whole picture allows me to realise that despite the challenges, it's worth it. I think we need to do the same thing as we reflect on what we've seen today and throughout 2 Samuel. Now here's that first set of images. For many of us, this series will, will have left you depressed, maybe even in despair. We know that as we see the brokenness, as we see the failings of the people in 2 Samuel, we know that it's no different today. It's easy to be overwhelmed by that. But I want to encourage you as you wrestle with that despair, as you're tempted to pack it all in and give it up, 
Look at the whole picture. See it all. God is a rescuer. He sees it all. He he brings hope to this broken world. Our God is a God who picks us up and protects us, who saves us, not out of duty, but because he delights in us. Hold on to that whole picture. Hold on to those wonderful truths. Hold on to the God that we have. Next, we saw that audacious claim of David's that he's righteous. And maybe that raised uh, thoughts of guilt and shame for you. Knowing the mistakes you've made, the sin that you've gotten, given into. If you're feeling guilty, if you're feeling trapped in that, don't forget the rest of the picture. Don't forget that great reversal that Jesus brings. We can claim righteousness, but not because of anything we've earned or done, but it's because it's been gifted to us. Jesus gives us his righteousness. We don't need to be trapped in guilt. We simply need to trust God, trust that he's paid the price for us, no matter what guilt we might be feeling. And so in him... And not ourselves is our strength. Humans fail. We fail. But we don't do this by our own merit or achievement. So instead, look to God's power. That's what will get us through to the end. Rest in him. Let him take you to the finish line. And it's in him that we find light and life. That we find true hope. The light of morning at sunrise. The life of grass after the rain. In the end, we recognize that we are, we are wired to want this picture, this, this beauty, this, this hope. And like David, we're tempted to look for that satisfaction elsewhere, in all the wrong places. But the book of Samuel, all of it, reminds us that there's only one place we can find that satisfaction, only one place we can find hope, one place in all of history. And it's in the promised King Jesus. So we put our hope and our lives in him. What a great gift it is to find that hope in Jesus. Because it's a hope that can't be squashed, can't be stopped. It's a hope that can weather any darkness or depression. A hope that can't be overwhelmed by guilt. A hope that will give us strength, that will see us through to the very end. It's a hope that I'm going to pray that each one of us will hold on to tightly. Please join me. Lord, as as we reflect on this passage and this series, we want to recognize the hurt, the despair of the broken world that we live in. But we don't want to stop there. Lord, we, we want to let that brokenness point us to the one who fixes things. We want it to point us to the hope that we find in Jesus, who rescues us and protects us, who strengthens us, who casts away our sin and guilt and shame and gives us a righteousness, belonging, part of your family. Lord, help us hold on to that, even as we are overwhelmed by the different negative feelings around us the despair of this world. Help us to hold on to the hope that we have in you. 
Help us to spur one another on in that hope. And we thank you that you'll bring us through to the end. And we pray it in Jesus' wonderful, wonderful name. Amen. Well, there we go. Uh, We do have time for questions, if you want to have a go at that. Genetics or nurturing? Why is there such a huge difference between David's sons? I mean, the first two, murdering, adulterous, rapists, and Solomon's? Well, Solomon wasn't so great either, was he? He started started good, went pretty pear-shaped quickly. I think there's a problem that we all have. It's being human. Um, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't think we, the Bible gives us a nature nurture kind of answer. Uh, there's definitely sin that that we corrupt others with. Uh, I think David is has some failings in the parenting department, but yeah, it, it's not super helpful to speculate too far. It's an encouragement to do all that we can for our kids, though, isn't it? Robert, uh, I enjoy the fact that, you know, you talk about the messiness of life with kids um, and throughout sort of 2 Samuel, you know, it's striking how in detail we get these really vivid pictures of David's failures. Do you think it's a mistake that we often seem to confuse middle class Anglo living (laughs) with uh, what the Christian life ought to look like? Is it should not that we should aspire to live like a vagabond, roguish, even though you're wearing a rogue shirt, sort of life. Um, can we do a better job, I guess, of expressing what authentic Christianity ought to look like? A little bit more like David with rough edges. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can. I think we do. There's a culture thing that we've inherited that says uh, that confuses. Yeah, being a good citizen in a sense, with, with being a Christian. So we, when I was at college, we looked at mission, uh, and there's, there's a whole bunch of missionaries through history who've gone to, you know, uh, say, tribes of, in Africa and, and confused what it means to be a Christian and so got them wearing suits to church and, you know, because that's something we do in our culture. We dress up to go to church. But, but so, so they were confusing you know, being proper with being a Christian. So we have to, we do have to be careful of our culture baggage. Yeah. So let's just keep reminding, stripping it down. What does it, what does it look like to be a Christian? It's about following Jesus. It's, it's not about your income or lifestyle in, in that sense. But obviously we, we're trying to remove sin from our lives and we'll all be at different points in that process. Um, we need to be open and welcoming to, to people at whatever point uh, and make sure we're not confusing culture with Christianity. Why none came through? So there we go. I'll pass over to the band uh, and we'll sing our last song. <laughs>